I want to start today by reading God's word uh, from Matthew 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down, and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. The Beatitudes, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we're starting a new series today called Blessed. And we're going to talk for the next several weeks about the Sermon on the Mount, which is a famous sermon that Jesus preached. And this series is going to fall into our redemptive community core value. And so this is the way we're going to live this series out. This Wednesday and every Wednesday in June from 6.30 to 8, we are going to have a time to gather together as a church family at the summit. All ages are welcome. We'll have a dinner selection every week and some activities. That sounded really fancy, a dinner selection. Hot dogs, hamburgers, you know, things like that. <laughs> a dinner selection. And we want you to come. And we want you to be together with your church family. We're going to have it rain or shine. We have the summit to be inside or outside. And this is the idea, that we learn what the Beatitudes are saying as we learn that they're, what they're saying about how we live life together as believers, that we have a chance to live that out together. So I want to encourage you when you come on Wednesday nights to come on mission to come on mission, to come in and look for opportunities to serve and love one another. Look for opportunities to have faith-building conversations. Look for opportunities to tell, exhort and encourage one another and help each other and pray for one another. Another thing that's going to be along with this series is in the summer, many of you, um, you like to walk or bike or sit in the yard. How many of you like to you just like to be outside? You'll do whatever. You'll fold the laundry outside if you've got it, right? You just go outside. Well, we, um, what, what we developed was something that you can kind of take with you in your pocket. So I'm going to push out an additional midweek podcast, an additional devotional that you can just tune in. Maybe when you're walking the peninsula or you're walking around your neighborhood or riding your bike. And you can just have some additional content to really push you further into these Beatitudes. There's so much we could talk about with it. It's so rich. If you're not a listener on an iPod or anything, um, I'll get you a printed copy if you want it. But you can access this all through our website and through our Facebook page. But sort of look for two Two things a week that are going to be coming out so that you can have more of the Word of God as you're doing your everyday things, okay? So let's just dive right in here um, into Matthew 5. Jesus' ministry, the whole point of what he did was to preach the coming kingdom. His goal was to teach the way of the kingdom, to demonstrate the power of the kingdom. And so he goes from city to city, he goes from village to village, and he proclaims the gospel, and he heals people, and he teaches them, and he, he, he says, this is how it's going to work, and then he shows them. I feel like he does that for the audible learners, for the visual learners, right? He'll show you any way possible that this is what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. And he was the perfect combination of personal work and power, on the Sermon on the Mount, he talked methodically about the process, the journey. 
He said, this is the way you can live a blessed life. For those of you that are A plus B equals C people, this is the way you do it. But then a few chapters later in Matthew 5, he heals people. (laughs) He goes around and he heals lepers and he stills the storm and he casts out demons. And he shows that there is a process to living out your faith, but there is also the power to live out your faith. He says it, he says it, and he shows it. Now, I think where sometimes we get a little caught is some people say, well, I admire the ethical teacher of Jesus. Like, what he says makes sense. Um, You know, if you're nice to people, they'll be nice to you. You know, sort of all of these principles. But they kind of shy away from the spooky or the supernatural part of Jesus. Like, the whole um, storm stilling and demon casting stuff That just really doesn't suit me. I didn't grow up talking about that, so that just makes me a little bit uncomfortable. So we like to stick with the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you who do this. You know, okay, great, I'm good with that. But then we have people on the other side who who kind of see the Sermon on the Mount, and they're fascinated with the miracles. They're fascinated with the healing of all diseases. They chase the miracle so hard. But when it comes to, hey, don't lust, don't swear, love your enemy, they're not really interested in those practical things. I just want all of the exciting parts of living out my faith in Jesus. And so what I love is that the Sermon on the Mount tells us that the same God that says follow him consistently and closely and depend on him daily. And yes, there are consequences and there are formulas and there are things that if you do, this will happen. He also says the same Lord that says that shows up in power and authority and he changes the impossible. And so we cannot separate the personal work of Jesus and the power of Jesus. And in fact, I um, kind of smartly preached about Naaman last week and the power of who Jesus is and wanted to start this series about being blessed in the Beatitudes to show you that Jesus is both things. He is both practical and, and methodical as well as he is go dip in that river seven times. You cannot put God in a box and decide this is how he works all the time. He works however he wants to work because he's God. And so if you were here last week, we heard about Naaman and this miraculous thing that happened to him. And this week, we're going to talk about how Jesus goes up to a crowd. He sits on a mountain and he says, here are some predictable things that you can expect if you're living in the kingdom of God. So Jesus, uh, like we talked about, he goes up to the mountain and probably the audience is two kind of concentric circles. So the inner circle is the disciples, and then the outer circle is the crowd. And there was no sound systems at this time. There was no men in black in the sound booth, you know, making sure that he could get all of, all, everyone could hear it. And so he, he, didn't, he didn't shout at the top of his lungs. In fact, I love Jesus is just so wise. He actually goes on this hillside above a lake, And this lake is shaped like a bowl and has strong winds that serve as a natural amplifier. So if you speak in a firm voice, the downwind would carry his voice a far distance. So he knew exactly where he wanted to preach the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I visited there when I went to Israel in November. I I took a picture. I want to show you. Now, 
This was the hillside that the Sermon on the Mount was preached on, and it very much looked like a natural amphitheater. And centuries later, Byzantines built this church on top of it to commemorate that Jesus moment. So this building wasn't there. But this is the building that they put on there to say, this is where that happened. And the, the particular landscape was beautiful. There was just colors and flowers and beautiful, lush gardens everywhere. And so I can imagine Jesus said, let's go there. It's pretty. You'll be able to hear me. <laughs> and so he walks over, and the disciples come, and then the, the crowds come. Now, in the scripture, um, they're listening intently. But it's clear that this sermon is primarily addressed to the professing disciples. But the crowds were leaning in. They were listening. They, they were curious of what was happening. And, and I, I got to thinking that this is really how our Sunday services are designed. That, that the word that is primarily prepared is, is to feed and strengthen and inspire the life of God's people. But our prayer is that more and more will be curious. That more searchers and more doubters and more skeptics will join us at Erie First. And so I want to remind you, I want to encourage you that, that we believe that, that, that the spirit-anointed, authoritative preaching of the word of God has a certain power to awaken unbelievers to the truth of Jesus. That's what we see here in Matthew 5. And I want to encourage you, I want, I want to encourage you to invite people, to invite everyone, to invite anyone to come, even if they're not believers, to our service each week, because it is precisely the things the Lord has to say to us that will awaken belief and desire in others to come to Christ. So Jesus goes on uh, to give a list of the Beatitudes in his Sermon on the Mount. And he basically says that these are assurances, they're promises. If you're part of God's kingdom, this is what will happen. So for example, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Comfort is part of being in God's kingdom. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Fulfillment is what God's kingdom brings, will be fulfilled, will be comforted. And he ends um, the Beatitudes, he actually begins and ends the Beatitudes with this assurance that if you are these things, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So verse 3 said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And number, uh, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he makes two assurances, and he sandwiches six promises in between about kingdom life. And Jesus, who is sharing these things, he is the epitome of all of them. He encompasses the entirety. He is the living, breathing example of each beatitude. He is poor in spirit. He is pure in heart. He is meek. He is merciful. He is a peacemaker. He is these things. And this perfect human is promising every disciple, promising me, promising you, that, he, that, that the kingdom of heaven is with him. And we can, by the power and the persistence of the Holy Spirit, we can learn how to live life like the Beatitudes is saying. So I want to encourage you as you get in this word this month that you say, God, how can I become each of these things so that I can be more like Jesus? So now that you sort of have the overview of the Beatitudes for this series, I, wanna, I just want to spend the rest of our time on one Beatitude, on one verse. I want to look at it in depth, and that's verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I believe there's a reason Jesus started with this one, um, because it's foundational. 
If you don't get this one, the rest of them are very difficult to get because spiritual poverty is the prerequisite for eternal life. Spiritual poverty is the prerequisite for eternal life. So one of the words that is used in this verse and the rest of the verses is the word blessed. Now you'll find in a number of translations, the word is rendered as happy. Um, But I think in our culture, the way our culture defines happy, this isn't exactly um, the correct meaning all the time. After all, you can't mourn and be happy at the same time. But some commentaries would translate blessed to be more of a sense of approval. It's saying that God has expressed his approval on this type of people. So to be blessed is to be approved by God. And I like that definition. I think that fits better than happy. So when people ask you, how are you doing today? And you reply, I'm blessed. You are saying, I'm approved by God today. I'm approved by God. I'm blessed. When you call something blessed, that's a blessed place or that's a blessed day. When you say to someone, have a blessed day, that means have a God-approved day. God is approving that. And so this beatitude describes what gets God's stamp of approval, those who are poor in spirit. Now, what does that mean? What does poor in spirit mean? It means that we have a sense of spiritual bankruptcy before God. We have a sense of spiritual bankruptcy before God. And the reason that I I use the word sense, a sense of powerlessness, a sense of bankruptcy, is because really, technically, everyone on planet Earth is poor in spirit. None of us can get to God on our own. None of us have what it takes to live pleasing to God without him. But you have to sense it. Whether you sense it or not, you are powerless without God to come into his presence. We remain unclean. We remain helpless unless God rescues us with his grace. But you are blessed. You get God's stamp of approval when you realize how much you actually need him. That's what he's saying. When you have this sense, when you realize how much that you need God to get through your day, blessed are the people who are keenly aware of their inadequacies and their guilt and their failures and their helplessness and their unworthiness and their emptiness, who don't try to hide things under this kind of cloak of self-sufficiency, but who are honest about God and grieved and driven to the God of grace. Jesus said in Mark 2, 17, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, the only people who will ever come to get what Jesus has to give are sick people, people who know that they're spiritually and morally and very often physically crippled. That that is when we begin to understand who God is and how much we need him, is when we realize how desperate we are without him. Now, there's so many just great godly examples in the scripture of people who modeled to us about being poor in spirit. I just want to pick three Old Testament guys that, that showed us examples. One is Abraham. When he was dealing with the Lord about Sodom and Gomorrah, he said in Genesis 18, 27, Behold, I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. He knows. 
He knows that when he goes to the Lord, he has nothing to offer. He has no great solution. He is just dust and ashes. And then Jacob is another example. When he returned to the promised land after spending 20 years in exile, he wrestled with God in prayer. And he says in Genesis 32.10, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. He's saying, you've given me so much and I've deserved nothing. I've deserved none of that. And then thirdly, uh, example is Moses. When God came to him with a mission to lead his people out of Israel, he said in Exodus 3 and 4, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Moses says to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. He's saying, I can't do this. And God is saying, right, that's why I picked you. <laughs> Because you cannot do this on your own. But with me, you can do it. And these amazing biblical heroes were marked because they sensed their own inadequacies. And then they leaned harder into God with those. So my question for you this morning is, how well do you know your weaknesses? How well do you know them? And then what do you do with them? What do you, how do you treat them? Some of you are like, I can't think of any weaknesses that I have. <laughs> Just ask your wife. She'll probably be able to tell you. I mean, anyway. We have the, these feelings where, where how well do you know them and then what do you do with them? It's interesting. Some people ignore them. Just bury them. Some people joke about them to cope. Some work furiously to try to change them, but they fall short and they get discouraged and sometimes they get in a cycle of, of even depression and anxiety at times because they feel like they're not living up to this expectation that they have. What do you do? What do you do with your weaknesses? What do you do with your spiritual bankruptcy? In Matthew 23, Jesus talks about the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, and he says they load these huge burdens on the backs of the people, and they don't help them. They don't lift a finger to help them. So whatever burden the law placed upon men, the, the Pharisees added even more. They added even more qualifications. We've talked about this before. They added rules upon rules upon rules. But what he's saying is this, that the good news is the law has done its work when it convinces you that you're never, ever going to make it. The law has actually done its job then when you realize you are flat broke and there is no chance for you to get anywhere, to go anywhere up unless God shows up. And he says, that is exactly where I want you to be. It's the doctrine of total depravity. Everyone is flat broke. There is none righteous, not one. There is none who seeks after God, not one. Everyone is spiritually bankrupt. Everyone is spiritually broke. And the idea is that if we uh, deny it or hide it, if we don't admit it to God, he cannot work on it, but it's this thought that if we stay humble and thankful for Christ's sacrifice and we just simply admit, God, I need you. I, I need you to save me and I need you to help me through my everyday as a Christian because I can't do it on my own because people are too annoying and, and I'm, I'm too broke and I have too much going on and God, I cannot do this unless you show up and help me. And in that desperation, when you get to that moment, that's what the scripture is saying, is that blessed are the poor in spirit. 
When you say, I can't do this, God says, I've got you right where I want you. I've got you right where I want you. Because now you will lean harder into me and blessed, approved, you will be in the poor in spirit. Because then in your weakness, you will be strong. So how do we stay humble? How do we stay thankful? How do we stay poor in spirit? Because God does not want us to walk around feeling defeated all the time or having these moments of uh, you know, I'm just, I, I'm a failure. He doesn't want that. He, how do we stay that way? The first thing we do is we worship continually. We worship. You know, worship brings us back into focus. I've talked about this before, but when David um, is king, he goes and he gets the Ark of the Covenant and he brings it into Jerusalem and he's moving it. And um, he's moving, it takes 30,000 men with him to get the Ark. And so there's, I mean, there's a lot of people with him and they're moving it to its rightful place, and he's bringing the ark into the city, and he's being really careful that to give God all the honor he deserves. And the scripture says, every six steps on the way to Jerusalem, he stops and sacrifices two animals. So 30,000 people, every six steps, that's this far, they stop and sacrifice two animals. And then they take six more. And they stop and sacrifice two animals. Can you imagine how long it took to get where they were going? But this was a time-consuming procedure because David was saying God was and is that worthy of our time and our focus. And so when we get into worship, it brings us back into focus. It reminds us of how worthy God is. So what happens when you walk into worship after you failed a test or fought with your mom or got rear-ended on Peach Street? What happens when you don't feel very close to God or you're tired or you're moody? Or, or what happens when your best effort just seems completely pathetic? Some people think that you're being a hypocrite if you yell at your kids on the way to church and then come down front to worship. Let me tell you something. That's not hypocrisy. That is a healthy understanding of who is worthy of the worship. It's not us. It's not us. And so if you, in yourself, failed all week long and you run down to the front and worship, do not let the enemy tell you that that's not what you're supposed to do. That's exactly what you're supposed to do, that your poor in spirit makes you blessed in that moment. And the beauty of worship is that it takes all of this pressure that it's not about us, it's not about our circumstances, it's not about our frame of mind, it solely relies on the fact that God is worthy to be praised, he is worthy to have the rightful position in the center of our lives, and he is worthy for us to stop every six steps if that's what it takes to get us there. God is worthy of your worship. And the poorer in spirit you are, the more you can give God all the credit. The second way we can continue to stay focused and poor in spirit is to stay low, to stay humble. Now remember, humility isn't feeling bad about yourself. It isn't thinking bad about yourself. It's just really knowing yourself. It's knowing your inner thoughts. It's knowing your motives and knowing your intentions and just owning those. Humility is, is acknowledging that God is great and we are not and that God is holy and that we are sinful and that God makes the rules and we follow them. That he's in charge. He is all and we are nothing. And the scripture says that those who humble themselves and comply with God when he humbles them, the scripture says, shall be exalted. 
And so humility says those who want to build high have to start low. If you are always looking for the way to get to the lowest spot, that is how the kingdom of God works. It is not looking for opportunities to be the best or the front or get the credit. The third way to deal with our spiritually bankrupt selves is to boast in our weaknesses. Um, It's interesting. This is such a, a strange concept for us. But in our spiritual shortcomings, we often find, always find, that God has provision. So we get to view our poverty against his plenty. We get to view our poverty against his plenty. So God delights when we get to the end of ourselves, when we expose our deficiencies, because then he can show his sufficiencies through us. You will be familiar with this verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And that's why we sang, your grace is enough this morning, because that goes with this scripture, that what he's saying is you can boast about your weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on you. That God is enough in those weaknesses, that he has something for us, that his wisdom is always adequate for every perplexity, that his peace is always ample for every anxiety, that his forgiveness is always equal to every iniquity, that that he is saying he will always make up for what we fail to do. And I believe that this is a kingdom principle that's really hard to get right because it is not very natural to say to people, yeah, I'm really bad at that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm not good at that at all. I'm really bad at that or I'm really failing in this area. This is a kingdom principle that's really hard for us. But we feel like Jesus is kind of turning the world upside down when he encourages us to be weak and frail and broken. But really, He's turning the world right side up. And he's saying a group of people who are so dependent on God and what he wants us to do and leaning into him so hard is the very thing that will usher in the kingdom of God. I want to end with this allegory. I'm going to read it to you. You may have heard it before. It says, There is a story of a man who had a dream in which an angel showed him two doors, one marked heaven and one marked hell. Curious, the man went into the door marked hell, and inside he saw an unhappy sight. Twelve people sat around with a cauldron of steaming hot soup, and beside them were large spoons, too large, in fact. The spoons required both arms and all one's might to lift and place in the cauldron, and many were able to get food on the end, but the weight of the spoon causes them to tip over as the people brought the food to their lips. So those in hell were never able to eat from the deep cauldrons. The spoons were too heavy and too long. Most in hell, the angel explained, have spent long hours trying to feed themselves, but have failed again and again. And the dreamer watched them staring and starving, and he recoiled from hell's doorway. These people have no hope, he thought. It's torture, he said to the angel, to have what you desire sitting before you, yet be unable to even have a taste, to be starving with the soup right there in front of you. And turning, he opened the door marked heaven. And inside, he saw 12 people sitting around a deep cauldron of soup with spoons too large to fit for their lips. And the room was the same as the one in hell, same light, same size. But in this room, there was joy unlike anything the man had ever seen. He and the angel were caught up in laughter. They were singing, and the people celebrated for long hours as the soup sat boiling before them. In leaving, the man was puzzled by the contrast between the two rooms. 
one so filled with joy and the other a prison of misery. And certainly those in heaven were in denial. They must not be hungry yet. And the dreamer asked the angel why those in heaven were happy, but the ones in hell were not. And the angel answered, the ones in heaven have learned to feed each other. The ones in heaven had learned to feed each other. Now that's not from the Bible. That's an allegory. That's a story that explains this idea that when we are poor in spirit, we're always looking for a way to use our spoon to feed another. That we're not prideful, that we're not demanding, that we don't feel like God owes us anything. Being poor in spirit inherits the kingdom of God and it has us serve each other. That we have what we need if we would just be humble and thankful and serve one another. So this week I wanna challenge you I want to challenge you to wake up every day and just declare how much you need God in your life. Even just for that day, just simple, God, I need you. I need you more today than yesterday. I need you to help me accomplish this work that's set before me. I need you to help me do the yard work that I have on my list. I need you to help me parent my kids. I need you to help my aging mother. I need you to help me, God. I can't do it on my own. No matter how many plans I make, no matter how many resources I get, God, I need you in my life. And I believe that as you do that, your heart will turn into this spiritual bankruptcy to God to say that, God, we need you every step of the way and you will be blessed. Your days will have God's approval. So would you stand? I want to pray for you today before I let you go. Father, I thank you that you have made a way, a practical way for us to experience the kingdom of heaven. God, as you have said in the Beatitudes, that we should live poor in spirit. And I pray this week that we could understand and see our deep need for you. God, that we could understand that without you, we would have nothing. God, without you, we could not connect to you. We would not experience your presence. We would not experience your blessings. And so, Father, I pray this week that we could declare that we need you. God, that you can make us a people that serve each other and that serve you. Father, that you can make us a people that honor you in, in such a deep way, Lord, and we would do that by understanding our great need for you. God, thank you for your word and how clear it is and how we should live our lives. And it's in your name we pray, amen.